Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. It's very good that you've joined us again. Um, we are very appreciative of our listeners and glad that some people uh, seem to find uh, enjoyment and insight in, in our discussions. Of course, we are continually plagued by the uh, by the very real likelihood that there is insight missing from our discussions. There are things that we've not thought of and perspectives on the topics that we discuss that must be aired and as always we would encourage you if you if you have any ideas or questions or insights or or scathing criticisms to to email them to uh, our email address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com we hope that you are weathering the various shutdowns around the country well and um, glad that you've chosen to listen to us uh, today we're going to be looking at what the proverbs have to say about forgiveness my name's Cameron and I'm talking to you from a Tasmania not yet in lockdown but I would not be surprised if next week, if I'm... I'm They're coming for you, Yeah, Yeah, well, it's all these plaguing New South Welshmen that's that's, that's doing it. (laughs) Uh, And g'day, I'm Ken uh, from the same spot. And I'm Luke, currently in a one-week lockdown in Lake Macquarie and plotting ways they can sneak into Tasmania. (laughs) That's right. And I'm Lachlan, also in uh, New South Wales, and staying here. This this week's lesson in the quarterly is about forgiveness, and we were perhaps a bit uh, needlessly facetious last week about whether the story of Joseph had had any insights to say about the the rest that's gained through family life. I I think it is without question that the story of Joseph provides very real insight into the into the topic of forgiveness, and uh, we may we may draw on that story in our discussion to to illustrate some of uh, what we read in proverbs. There are some proverbs that do address the concept of forgiveness, and we we're going to spend some time looking at those. Just before we start, uh, there is a cartoon. I've looked in vain. I, I don't actually have a copy of this. It was printed in a newspaper. Um, I can't find it, and it's uh, uh, it's not a crass cartoon, but but. It it uh, employs some some common Australian vulgarities to illustrate a very I think salient point, and it's a, a cartoon by Michael Linig on reconciliation, and the uh, first frame is entitled uh, "The Southerners Must Forgive the Northerners," and there's a cartoon depiction of a of a Melbourne resident wearing a suit, talking to a Queensland resident in a singlet shirt and some sh- shorts that are hanging a bit low. With a bit of bum crack revealing, <clears throat> and the southerner is saying, uh, uh, "You know, I forgive you for for being a lazy, you know, good for nothing bum." And then it says the the northerners have to forgive the southerners, and uh, uh, the northerner says, I, "I forgive you for being a stuck up little, you know, arrogant twerk." And and then it says the the, the southerners have to forgive the northerners. Um, I forgive you for sending us Pauline, and I'll try and forgive you for Surface uh, Paradise, and um, and then the, the Northerners have to forgive the Southerners, and I can't remember what they say, but you know, I forgive you for being arrogant and whatever else, and then and then the last frame says the Northerners and Southerners must come together uh, and experience reconciliation over a barbecue and tell jokes about Tasmanians and New Zealanders. Let the healing process begin. <laughs> so forgiveness and reconciliation that's our topic uh well, the verse that we... and, uh, well i think just just pause there before we go to the verse 
I think looking at forgiveness in the context of reconciliation, forgiveness as being something that is uh, has as its purpose a reconciliation in a relationship uh, is an important uh, way of placing it into its proper context. Um, sometimes we tend to talk about things like forgiveness and other things in this uh, isolated way as these concepts uh, that stand alone. Uh, but when you look at forgiveness as being something that has as its purpose the reconciliation of a relationship, that certainly makes a lot of sense of forgiveness in the context of the forgiveness that God gives us. Um, and uh, it also has a, a great value in remembering that the purpose of forgiveness is to restore a relationship. So there you are, that's perhaps a, a starting point to put forgiveness in its context. The verse that we're going to look at in Proverbs, at least this verse, does not address a relationship so much. It uh, seems to focus much more on, on vengeance. <clears throat> and who is, who is the proper person to dispense vengeance and retribution? Uh, it's in Proverbs 20, and it's verse 22. And we'll see what our different translations say. I'm reading from an NIV, and it says, uh, uh, Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. So, man on fire, uh, Taken, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, mm. all the great revenge movies. Um, <clears throat> mm. uh, we don't have to worry about it. We leave it to God. In fact, uh, it was Man on Fire, as I recall it, where um, Denzel Washington um, plays an alcoholic, uh, washed up, uh, skillful killer um, who's charged with protecting a young girl. Um, uh, and when he's about to kill one of the people, uh, um, they say to him, "Yeah, but what about what what about your Christianity?" Um, and he says, "Oh, you know, he says, what what about forgiveness?" And and his answer is, uh, uh, "That's a matter between you and God. My job is to arrange the meeting." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does your translation lock use the word vengeance? Because mine doesn't, but I know that in some it does. Now, I've got two in front of me at the opposite ends of the spectrum. So my, my New American Standard Bible, which is one of the ones I have that I go to for a very literal translation, um, do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Um, that's that's a, a bit of a drier and a, and a little bit of a more literal attempt at translating. And on the other end of the spectrum, the message, which I really love in the Old Testament particularly, don't ever say, I'll get you for that. Wait for God; He'll settle the score. To be honest, I don't, I don't know how to feel about that. That doesn't sound like the sort of forgiveness that uh, Jesus talks about in his sermons. You know, very famously, "Turn the other cheek." Mm. There's, there's, there's nothing in there about turn the other cheek and know that you know later on God is going to really give that guy the what for. Well, it's, it's not it that at all. It's I, just turn the other cheek and, and be done. I kind of think that what you're getting at there is the underlying dissatisfaction that motivates the Pharisees when we read the stories in the Gospels, because they weren't going around, you know, punishing 
and extracting vengeance on people, but they were pretty confident that God was going to. And Jesus offends them because he doesn't, he, he forgives the people that they think he's going to extract vengeance on. Let me put it in a modern context. Imagine that you are a, that you are a Christian of the kind that's very prominent in the Southern Bible Belt of the, of the United States, and you're absolutely passionate about the idea that God is going to extract vengeance from, I don't know, homosexuals. And imagine the feeling of betrayal you might have if if we play out the same sort of mind, uh, sort of thought experiment that Jesus does in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Imagine that you are one of those Christians and you get to heaven and you find that there's a bunch of homosexuals who got to heaven. You could easily find yourself angry and betrayed, feeling upset with God for being too forgiving. And we've, you know, in the earlier seasons of the podcast, we talked about the story of Jonah, haven't we? I knew you were like this God. You were quick to forgive and slow to anger, and it's made me so mad I want to die. Yeah, and um, there's also the different servants who are paid the same amount. Um, yeah. And some of, the, some of them are outraged. I mean, one of, the, one of the things, and we've also talked earlier about the story of Jacob and Esau, where Jacob and Esau are very disturbed at the concept that God might have a blessing for someone else. This is not even forgiveness. This is... Not worried that God would forgive. Just pure, pure selfishness. Just pure selfishness. We, or jealousy. We, it, it is possible to be in a state of mind where any goodness extended to someone else uh, you know, makes your life that much less bearable. One of the things that we do as human beings often is to compare. Uh, we really enjoy comparing ourselves. We enjoy ranking. At this time of the Olympics, you, uh, it brings it really to the fore. Uh, but we, we always like to think that well, we, we might not be the best, but we're, we're certainly better than them. Uh, and, and, and it's if you, and, and, and when you realize that, well, in fact, there's an equality that's perhaps undeserved, uh, that sort of that's, offends your sense right. of justice. Can I, I've got two, two things to say about that, uh, Ken. Uh, one of them is that uh, anyone who has taught high school, it's a plague to this continually. Uh, that's people comparing themselves against each other and, and checking to see that everything is happening fairly. Uh, and it's worth noting here that in one of the later Dogman books, and any of our readers not familiar with Dogman are, are deficient. It's, it's a series of kids' comic books which draw as their themes f- f- great... Great works of literature are, are encoded into these works in, in subtle and interesting ways. So there's uh, Lord of the Fleas, and there's uh, <laughs> For Whom the Ball Rolls, and there's what are some of the other titles? But the titles are all drawn from great works of literature, and the, the, the way the story plays out draws on these themes. But in one of them that I read recently, uh, the villain is a character called the Fair Fairy, and the Fair Fairy is running a TV show it's on the TV show, this person is playing the fair fairy. And the job of the fair fairy is to ensure that everything is fair. And so live on TV, she's mediating between squabbling children. And one of them saying, but he got, <clears throat> he's got a chocolate milk and I don't have one. She says, all right, bring out a chocolate milk and gives it to the other child. Now you've both got one. Oh, but his is bigger than mine. Oh, all right, all right, I'll bring out a bigger chocolate milk. And then, uh, but no, but at breakfast, it, 
she got biscuits and I didn't get biscuits. That's why I got a chocolate milk now. <laughs> all right. All right. So better being brisket and it gets more and more. In a, but these biscuits have sprinkles and hers had chocolate chips. All right. And then the fair fairy explodes and takes all the food and throws it on the ground and says, right, you both got nothing. That's perfectly fair. <coughs> and is sacked from her job. The fair fairy is sacked because she's she's gone to this tent tent from on live television. And so because she has lost her job, She's then determined that everyone must lose their job because that would be fair and and becomes becomes a huge villain um, and, and, and terrorises the town and with the aim of causing mass unemployment. Um, so, uh, you know, the desire for things to be fair and, and, and is quite a dangerous desire. And it's illustrated in a very hilarious but insightful way in this book. In terms of ranking people, have you ever heard anything madder than the ATAR? So if I said to you, all right, I want you to go to a high school and your job is, I, I, I'd just like you to rank everyone from best to worst. Yeah. Every single year 12 student across the state. Every, every single student, best to worst. And then, uh, and then you're, the correct result, when I ask students to do this, they look at me shocked. Um, and one or two of the brighter students will say, well, best to worst at what? Oh, no, not best to worst at anything in particular, just just best to worst in general. Um, and <laughs> and you realise at this point there's, it's completely ridiculous. If you r- rank people from best to worst at maths, that can at least be done with some degree of precision. Best to worst at public speaking or, or dance or visual arts, that's starting to get... Even just applying a score is becoming a little bit subjective, but then ranking it best to worst. But then if some people are, are at school competing to be the world's best underwater knitters and other people are at school competing to break the Guinness World Record on how far to throw a peanut and other people are there for creative arts and some people are there for science, what on earth does it even mean to rank people from best to worst? It's completely bonkers. It, you, the ADA actually does a pretty good job of what it's trying to do, which is to rank people from best to worst at their capacity to thrive under a particular sort of stress, which is academic stress. But that that ability is only relevant and beneficial to a small number of careers and vocations and personalities. So it's just a mad system. But we're obsessed with ranking ourselves and comparing ourselves to others. And there's some subtle ways in which the attitudes come out um, in very, very different ways for people who have slightly different pictures of the world. I was fascinated um, recently to watch the final of the men's high jump in the Olympics in Tokyo. And there were two men who were jumping and they both had jumped the same number of, of you know, misses and successes. And then it got to the final height and they both had three misses. They couldn't get over the final height. So there was no way to settle it by going back through their earlier jumps and working out who'd had the more, the more misses at earlier heights and so on. And it comes down to the nuance of the sport and i have to admit i'm not an expert on the the um administration of high jump athletics but what i saw on the screen was the official came and said right you know do you want to have a jump off and the one of the athletes said can we just have two golds two gold medals and the official said yes that is possible so the two athletes looked at each other had a massive handshake and a big hug and went off in, in a very highly emotionally charged celebration of sharing the victory. And I was fascinated because I thought, wow, that's really cool. Isn't that amazing? I think that's really cool. Basically what they were admitting, the official was admitting that the resolution of measurement 
that the high jump provides was not sufficient to distinguish which of these two was better. It's a little bit like if two swimmers had both touched the pool at exactly the same time, a dead heat. That's just meaning the resolution of your timing equipment can't tell which is the better. I don't know what happens in swimming in such a situation in a final. But I was fascinated afterwards to read of people who had reacted to that high jump result vigorously in the opposite direction to me, feeling that it was an affront to what the Olympics meant because the Olympics are about finding the people who are the best in the world at something. And how can you have two people who are the best in the world at high jump? It's clearly ludicrous. And they, they were really angry about it. Um, you know, one, one day you're handing out two gold medals in the high jump. The next day you're a communist dictatorship. Obviously, there's a, there's a direct mapping there. But I but guess like they're worried it, about isn't it, it interesting? Carried, carried to the extreme. If all the competitors failed all of their jumps in the first round, then they could all just claim... Gold medals. <laughs> that's but that's the, perhaps I mean, there is the a, problem. There, there is also, I mean, there's another side to that. It's a wonderful celebration of the uh, uh, of the equality of their skill. Um, uh, but there's a very pragmatic uh, element to it as well, because if they are both so close and then they have a jump off, then the odds of you being the silver medalist rather than the gold medalist are pretty high. Um, mm. So mm. if you can retain the gold medal, you've got nothing to lose because the other bloke retains the gold yeah. medal as well. You've, whereas if you have a yeah. jump off, you've got a lot to lose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's really interesting to me that this discussion that started in verse 22 about God's vengeance has become a discussion about, about fairness. And Luke, you were saying you're a bit uncomfortable with this picture of God. While we've been having the discussion, I've looked at verse 23. Just, just take a look at what that says. The Lord detests double standards. He is not pleased by dishonest scales. And isn't that actually talking about fairness right there? And, and isn't it almost a bit of a caution to us? Verse 22 says, don't try and get, equal, don't try and get even with someone via vengeance. Leave that up to God. Why? Because of verse 23, God doesn't like double standards. I kind of hear it saying so much of vengeance is motivated by a, a double standard. I'm going to allow myself a whole lot of exceptions and excuses, but you, you have offended me and I am not going to let you off the hook. And by, by asking us to defer that vengeance to God, the, the Proverbs link together in a way to kind of say, hang on a minute, don't be quite so upset when God is merciful to that other person in forgiveness, because he, hasn't he already been for, forgivingly merciful to you? The, the fact that God is, uh, has no double standards means that he'll treat you just as he treats them. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, C.S. Lewis... Two other com sorry, two other comments on that before you go to the C.S. Lewis quote. Um, uh, one is go to verse 24 and you get some insight into why uh, that might be. Uh, and that is, so God under doesn't like the differing weights. He, he, he doesn't like that differing treatment. But you, a man, uh, how can you understand what you do? You, you don't have that knowledge, um, even of your own ways. Um, so uh, best to leave it to God. Um, uh, uh, I've lost the second one. Anyway, that we'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, the the double standards thing uh, features in one of the Screwtape Letters, a book that I've referred to previously by C.S. Lewis. 
uh, in it. The the author who uh, is a devil tempting and uh, a devil advising another devil how to how to tempt effectively, says that some very simple double standards are very effective in producing long term strife within a relationship. He said all you have to do is ensure that he interprets um, <clears throat> every nuance of expression and, and uh, you know, how she looked when she said it and how she said she was just so cross, you know. Um, when she, she blew up at me. She just blew up at me. <clears throat> and at the same time, let him demand that other people take his words at their face value. All I said was... All I said was these words, yeah. and she got so cross. <laughs> which is, which is like you read it, you think, yeah, well, I've I've probably done that. Like, uh, you know, are you going fin- finish the thought? No, though? no, you're right, Luke. I've definitely done it. You're a hundred percent right. Um, I was going to say th- it's really interesting. We come to this. I've been thinking recently um, about the concept of double standards and hypocrisy. Um, and, and, and the organized church, because, of course, everybody's very good at recognizing hypocrisy in other people. We're all experts at that. And, and that's basically essentially what, what you're illustrating there with that story, Cam, um, is we recognize a double standard when someone else is applying it, especially if, if we're on the, uh, the, the unfairly treated side of that particular scale. We're not so good at recognizing the double standards that we ourselves make. Um, but... It is very common that hypocrisy or double standards is an, you know, an accusation leveled at the church or our church or a denomination or what have you. It, it, it very often comes at a religious organization or a Christian organization. And I've been th- I think there's, there's two important things to remember about that is one, firstly, yes, it's definitely true. Church is, is hypocritical, often needlessly hypocritical, but even even if we took away all of the unnecessary hypocrisy in a church, it would still be hypocritical because the church fundamentally asks people to adhere to a standard that its own members are not capable of adhering to. It upholds So you the have standard. church members. Well, it, it, it preaches mm. a standard that its own members do not live up to, cannot live up to. So it is inherently hypocritical. We are inherently hypocritical as a church. But the second important point to remember is that just because it is hypocritical does not make it wrong. People who are being hypocritical are often right. They're just being unfair. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and the di- there's a difference between the first and the second sort of hypocrisy. So, um, you know, someone who is running and telling you not to take drugs and is on the side running a drug dealing operation is in a different category to someone who tells you not to take drugs even though they are addicted themselves uh, it's mm. it's both a hypocrisy but it's a hypocrisy of a different sort um there is a story i know uh, the brother of one of my friends who, who grew up in a primary school and in grade five he cooked up this scheme because at his school you got fined for chewing chewing gum and the fine was two dollars it was one dollar but if you didn't pay on the day the fine accumulated so the next day it was two dollars um and so what he did is he bought a whole bunch of loose change and told people that if they were caught chewing chewing gum he'd pay the dollar up front if they gave him a dollar fifty the next day 
So he undercut the school. And then he started distributing <laughs> chewing gum. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> so. oh, what an entrepreneur. <laughs> he is now, oh, I think, dear. a teacher, so it serves him right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but there's different sorts of hypocrisy. And one thing we ought to do if we want to avoid the charge of hypocrisy is, is own it up front. We talked a few weeks ago, the passage in Proverbs 30, um, the sayings of Agar, the son of Jacka, where he says, look, who am I? I'm the most ignorant of men. I don't have a man's understanding. I've not learned wisdom. I've not learned folly. I'm, you know, I hardly have enough knowledge about myself to call myself a man. And it, as well as celebrating the truth that we have, in addition to that, there is a place for us standing up and saying, you know, who are we as a denomination? I mean, really, compared with compared with all the excellent things that about God that there are that we'll spend eternity learning, we only know a fraction of them now. Um, you know, there's so many nuances and you know unseen qualities of God and experiences of Him that we we can hardly really we can hardly really call ourselves worshippers of Him. You know. In, in the sense that our knowledge is so incomplete compared with all the wonderful good. But the bit that we have seen is fantastic. He's he's really good. And this is what um, Agar says uh, in in 30, is he contrasts himself and his inadequacies in a way to, to sort of throw the spotlight back on God. So um, I think that we, we must own the hypocrisy. And, and uh, this brings us back to the idea of forgiveness. In Sabbath school last week, one of the members of our church uh, was telling us about an evangelist whose evangelist evangelistic strategy is to run a series of meetings that are apologies. So come mm. and come in here, Christians apologize. And he stands out and says, look, we're sorry for the crusades. Um, and then he'll talk about the crusades and what motivated the Christians at the time and what was obviously wrong. And in hindsight, we misjudged God on that one. And then the next meeting will be an apology for, you know, the treatment of, uh, you know, people from different cultures and, and how, how Christian doctrine was at least used by colonialists to to um, justify what they did and he'll apologise for that. And then he runs a series of apologies and apparently the these meetings are very successful as an evangelistic exercise because people actually come to them. Hmm. Well, I was thinking, Luke, is it possible that accepting and acknowledging a certain amount of inevitable hypocrisy can help us be more forgiving if we're able to admit, yeah, we're not actually living up to the the standard we would want to be. Um, does that help us be be more forgiving of others that might also not be and that might offend us? Well, I think I think it inevitably does. Um, and there is a, there is another C.S. Lewis quote, uh, which I will. We'll try and find if you give me a couple of minutes. Yeah, and, and listeners um, can join us next week on the C.S. Lewis From Home podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, I've got well, one up if you didn't write so well, many so. good things, we wouldn't quote so many good things. <laughs> so here it is. Here's the quote. Um, oh, it's in Mere Christianity. Um, do not imagine. I'll, I'll do the whole thing because it's it's pretty good. Um, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who are always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seems a really cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. 
If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least, nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> There's a good reason why we why we draw on C.S. Lewis quotes fairly heavily here. He's He's pretty good at putting into words those thoughts that are quite perceptive. And I think what he says, what he says about the individual there, you can also apply to the church. So I think you're absolutely right, Cam. We have to own the hypocrisy. We, we have to recognize our own pride. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've thought, you know, how do you, how do you effectively counter this charge that, you know, the church is out there telling people they should do this, that, and whatever, but then they go and, 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 and employ and protect pedophiles and, and uh, mismanage money and all the rest of it. And I think, I think a big, not, not obviously part of the answer is don't do those things. Um, that's the obvious bit. But I think another big part of it is maybe, maybe the church shouldn't be telling people what they should do. Maybe the church should just be focused on helping each other to do what we think is right. And if we say anything about what other people should do, it's to say, this is what we try and do because we believe it to be right. You're welcome to join us and we'll help you if you want to. And we regularly find ourselves in the position of needing forgiveness. So, um, yeah, we, we know we know we're not good at this. Well, I'm in a situation of needing forgiveness myself right now. Prior to starting recording this, I made the comment that by my quick scanning, Proverbs 20 was more one of those chapters of Proverbs that was more like dot points and was a bit less connected as a as a sort of coherent series of thoughts strung together into an argument and i and i need to come and seek forgiveness for that ignorant statement that i made because i've just been scanning it again in light of what we're discussing come back and have a look at verse 9 of proverbs 20 and and probably actually 8 to 11 uh, i'll just read them uh, when a king sits in judgment he weighs all the evidence distinguishing the bad from the good Verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure and free from sin. This is this idea of hypocrisy. This is the idea of double standards. And because it's the idea of double standards, look what verse 10 says. False weights and unequal measures. The Lord detests double standards of every kind. That's almost exactly the refrain that came after verse 22 when, where we started this episode. Um, and then it still connects in with the same theme in in verse 11, even children are known by the way they act, whether their conduct is pure and whether it is right. So here, earlier in Proverbs 22, it's exploring, it seems to me, in light of our conversation, it's exploring the idea of how sure are you that you're the one who who has the right and privilege to, to judge everyone else? Um, how can you say that you've cleansed your heart and you're, you're free free from sin? Or indeed, it's all said in the first person, which is even more challenging, isn't it? How can I say, I have cleansed my heart? And then it immediately follows that with this refrain, God detests double standards. So if you can't say that you have cleansed your heart and you're free from sin and you're pure, why on earth are you expecting the other person to be? In other words, why are you wanting vengeance on them in the first place? 
So I, I am, I'm going to completely change my mind about Proverbs 20. I actually think that there is a consistent theme being explored here. It uh, ties in a lot like with the story of Joseph, because Joseph ends up at the end of the story in a position. So he's not just in a position to exact vengeance, but uh, what he interpreted, at least at the time, as, as a young child, as divine revelation. Hmm was that he would be in that position one day. This is a foretold occurrence, and here he is. And it's really interesting, because in the story it says that his brothers will bow down. Well, they do. They never bow down. He never asked them to bow down, ever once. And most of the times they bow down in the story, I think nearly all of them, except for once after Jacob dies. But they all happen when they don't know that he's Joseph. And in, in the dreams it says that his, the sun and the moon, that his mother and father would bow down to him. That never happens in the story. Hmm. Um, and uh, and when Joseph is in that position to exact vengeance, he says, oh, look, I know you were trying to do the wrong thing, but this was definitely part of God's plan. Um, mm. And and he, he intervenes with the Pharaoh for their well-being and their safety. Um, it is, it is you know, a great, a great story. Uh, in terms of the vengeance... Uh, belonging to the Lord, this theme uh, is picked up. So that's in verse 22, where it says, "Don't the verse we started with, um, don't say I'll pay you back for this wrong because vengeance belongs to the Lord or the Lord will intervene to make things right. One of my favourite chapters in the New Testament is in Romans 12. And the whole chapter is fantastic. Um, but it finishes towards the end with this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Sentiment mm. from the proverb. Uh, be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Um, that's an interesting idea. <clears throat> you can imagine God sitting up there saying, well, I, <clears throat> I was going to intervene and help there, but you've, uh, you've said much, made such a mess of it yourself. There's, there's not much I can do now. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like a very, very young child trying to assemble a, a complicated piece of machinery. It would be possible f- through their efforts to, to get it into such a state where you, you could say, well, actually, I can't, I can't yeah. do anything to help you there. So, so don't, don't take revenge. Uh, make sure you leave room for God to act. Hmm. I, I, I want to pick up on what you've raised there in that last sentence. Uh, and tied in also to verse 11 of chapter 20 that you alluded to, uh, Lachlan. And it says this, Even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is pure and right. Um, And I want to suggest, when we come to the concept and the forgiveness, that in fact it's not a concept. Uh, That forgiveness is in fact uh, an action. and it's an action that follows a decision. And I think it's important then to realise some things that forgiveness is not. Um, forgiveness is not feeling. Uh, it may lead to feelings, uh, but it's not a feeling. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Um, it might, over time, uh, lead to a less painful memory, um, but it's not uh, forgetting. Um, and uh, forgiveness is not excusing. 
Um, it's a decision that leads to an action which is reckon, which in which leads to reconciliation. Now, what are those actions? Well, what 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 is that action that we're um, uh, looking for? And those concepts that I've just referred to, I've actually taken from a book that I've found most helpful, um, uh, called The Peacemaker uh, by uh, an engineer and lawyer, uh, Ken Sandy, um, and he refers to the um, uh, the four. Uh, promises of forgiveness and he says they are these I will not dwell on this incident I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you I will not talk to others about this incident and I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship now that doesn't mean you'll end up being best friends if you weren't best friends before you may not end up being best friends afterwards um, uh, but I think when we when we're looking at forgiveness it's helpful to look at those things that it's not and helpful to look at what it actually is and and I thought that's a I've found that a very helpful framework as I've tried to think mm. about how I can live uh, forgiveness the actions of forgiveness uh, so that hopefully uh, as a, even as a child is known by their actions and recognising my complete inability to do it on my own and the need for God to be involved, uh, that those are things that might be helpful. This this is really relevant to that, Ken. Um, this is perfect, in fact. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest at this point that anybody playing Sabbath School at Home Bingo, add, go ahead and add Sand Talk to your, to your bingo chart because I'm bringing it up again. But I, I find these... Look, you've, you've, we've talked on the podcast before about the sort of God speaking to people across cultures and times and the idea like Mekizedek and, and prophets outside of the, 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 um, you know, the Hebrew tradition. Um, this is what in sand talk, um, Tyson Yanka Porter has, has to say about, um, Aboriginal law and the concept of, uh, justice and forgiveness and all of that. Um, just listen to this short quote and yes, just listen to this short quote. Um, All law-breaking comes from that first evil thought, that original sin of placing yourselves above the land or above other people. In our traditional system of law, we remember, however, that everyone is an idiot from time to time. Punishment is harsh and swift, but afterwards there is no criminal record, no grudge against the transgressor. Perpetrators are only criminals until they are punished, and then they may be respected again and begin afresh to make a positive contribution to the group. In this way, people will not lie and shift blame or avoid punishment by twisting rules to escape accountability. They can look forward to a clean slate and therefore be willing and equal participants in their own punishment and transformation, which is a learning process more than anything else. This is perhaps something of value to be taken from our stone stories to make justice systems more effective and sustainable today. Those old criminals in stone all over this country are not despised figures, but respected entities who received their punishment and are now revered in their roles of keeping the law. If we respect them and hear their stories, they can tell us how to live together better. Hmm. I, how many similarities are there conceptually between that hmm. and what you're talking about there with, with forgiveness? And bringing it back to the concept of a restoration of the relationship. Hmm. Yeah. And that doesn't mean, forgiveness doesn't mean that somebody will not face the consequences of their 
No, not, not at all. But it's focused on the reconciliation of the relationship. Mm. Which, which is, you know, when we talk about, um, talk about the book of life and, you know, the names go in the book of life and God will make your sins as though, um, you know, he, he will forget them as though they'd never He will happened. remember them no more. He will remember them no more. What it's talking about there and what we often, we, we really focus on that, you know, the sins being washed away. What we maybe don't focus on is that that is done to restore the relationship. Of course, when God mm. remembers things, he it's always a precedent to his acting. So when God remembers Noah in the in the ark, that precedes the drying up of the waters. And when uh, God remembers, is that Hannah, Samuel's mum? Mm. Yes. Uh, she's childless and then she conceives and has Samuel. Uh when, when it says God, and then God remembers the Israelites and the promise he made to Abraham, and that precedes the story of the Exodus. So when God says that he remembers the uh, sin no more, that, that getting back to your statement, Ken, you know, this will no longer be a thing that stands between us, upon which I base my actions in my dealing with you. Again, that doesn't mean that there's not appropriate measures taken to protect uh, and to avoid uh, further wrongs. Um, uh, but it does mean that, that the relationship, perhaps one of the classic examples of this, and many of our listeners may well be familiar with it, is the story of, of uh, Thomas Edison. You know, in the days when the light bulb was being invented and it took hundreds and hundreds of hours to you know, blow the mm. glass and, pro- and create the necessary vacuum and, and, uh, and, and, cre- and make the light bulb uh, to work. And uh, he gave the, um, uh, they, they, they had a, one finished light bulb and he gave it to the young worker to go and plug it in and you know to put it in the device to make it work and 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 he and this worker dropped it on the way um and smashed it and it was destroyed so that it was completely useless um and uh, so they had to start about making another light bulb and spend the hundreds of hours uh making another light bulb and they finished making the light bulb and uh, was ready to be plugged in, and Edison took the light bulb and handed it to that young worker uh, and gave it to him to go and plug it in again. Um, I think that's just a just a beautiful example of of I will not let this stand uh, between us. Um, Edison's an interesting figure, Ken, because he it was obviously had great strength of character. There's the story about when his uh, laboratory was burning down, or his the premises factory, and he said to his son, "Quick, go get your mum. She's she's never going to see a better fire than this one. Um, <laughs> we we might as well get some enjoyment out of this while it lasts." It's also the case that he was fairly ruthless, I think, in some of his business dealings with competitors. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's a great story. There, there's an extra element. To, to this that we've not really addressed and and one of them is uh, we've spoken as if vengeance is a thing that ought not be taken and I guess we would advise against any action being taken in a vengeful spirit but there are people against whom serious wrong has been done by an unrepentant party and at some point you look at this hopefully as soon as you find out about it and say this is not right something must be done uh and there is there is an element to the desire of uh, for justice uh, that is that is not 
altogether uh, vengeful in, in the sense that we use the word vengeful. Um, so, something must be done about this. This is, this is and the, the fact that the person is unrepentant and the, the fact that they will uh, not benefit from the intervention of the state personally, uh, uh, the fact that they may never repent um, doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't at least try and do something. Um, I know that there's there's a danger. There's the politician's paradox. We must do something. This is something. We must do this. Um, so <coughs> uh, I'm not advocating any action. But you know, I don't. I don't find that the. Um, I don't find the penal substitutionary model of the atonement sits very well with me. The idea that God is up there and people have broken his law and he says, rats, I've got to find someone to punish now. Um, who? Uh, someone, anyone, anyone. Jesus, are you up for the job? All right, well, I'll punish you then and let them off. Because um, I've, I've absolutely got to punish something uh, and someone because the law's been broken. Uh that that doesn't sit easily with me. I I am more comfortable with God looking up and saying, looking up or down or whatever spatial relation He has to the events that are happening. Um, he, you know, there's an interesting thought that God's always looking down on things because to look down on things is a bit of a pejorative term. But we always say that God looks mm. down on events. Um, <laughs> interesting turn of phrase. But I, I'm more comfortable with God saying. This is appalling. This is absolutely appalling. This is awful. Look at the abuse that's being perpetrated on this young innocent child. Something has to be done about this. Right, well, what could I do? Oh, crumbs, look at the abusive father. Isn't that appalling? He grew up in a home without any love or kindness. or any... What he's doing is blatantly wrong. Um, he is, however, reproducing wrongs that were done to him. This is absolute. Something must be done um, about this. Uh, some statement to outline uh, an expression, not even a statement. It, it might, might not necessarily need didactic value, but some some expression of just how bad this is. And I could punish that father. Oh, but look at look at his father, um, and uh, look at this, and look at this, and he must look it down. And and the, the picture you get from scripture is that God's always trying to look for ways to find the best in people, and. Um, you know, then he says, right, I'll do it. And that's not exactly the same as the penal substitutionary model of the, the atonement. Uh, but but there is some sense in which some, uh, I was going to say violent retribution needs to take place for some wrong. I don't mean violent retribution against a person, but something like a violent storm or, a, you know, something large and severe and serious needs to happen in the face of evil. Um and uh, and uh, so I think I think that for people who who really feel wronged by an unrepentant party, and and they have been they have been the victims of evil, I think there is a comfort in saying, "All right, God is going to sort this out." Mm. That may involve, and this, there's nothing mm. hypocritical about this. There's just saying, "All right, I'm going to let this go." Um, there's a bigger picture here at play, but I, I trust God that where vengeance must be meted out, it will be meted out in you know, in a I, way I, that's right. I, I really, a lot of what you say has many difficulties with it, Ken, but it also 
is a great exploration of, of some of these issues. And I sometimes wonder, and again, there are difficulties with this concept, but I sometimes wonder whether the cross uh, was not so much God saying, I have to find somebody, anybody who I can uh, uh, meet out my retribution on. Um, mm. uh, as mm. much as it was God uh, saying, this is how things have turned out, dare I say it, and I do this hesitantly and hope it's not blasphemous, because I am going to take responsibility myself for the way that things have turned out. I set it up this way, and if I was going to have love, I had to set it up this way. These are the consequences of that, and I will bear those consequences myself. Um, mm. uh, and uh, uh, I, I accept responsibility uh, in the physical manifestation of my presence in this world um, mm. uh, for the way it is. I share in that because at the end of the day, the love that is the, the benefit of that precondition uh, is worth even that. Mm. I'd like mm. to draw attention to the time. I um. haven't got to do my C.S. Lewis quote. <laughs> I'll, oh. I'll, I'll forego it. <laughs> All right. You get two next week. Get two next week. And uh, we'll let you read a Gerald Manley Hopkins poem as well. Oh, okay. Like... Wonderful. We'll be all right then. <laughs> uh, that, now, that's something we need more of. We need more poetry. I mean, we did. We looked at it in the Psalms, but we haven't really looked at anything since then. Ideas for future poetry. episodes. It would be interesting to look at. Too many interesting things to, to look at, and we will uh, leave you now. And uh, thank you for joining in this podcast and listening. Uh, we, I don't think we've answered many uh, questions necessarily, uh, but as always, feel free to email us if so you wish. And uh, please share this podcast with anyone who you think would, would find it interesting and get a blessing from it, uh, friends or enemies. And we would advise you, based on the topic of this uh, podcast to forgive those enemies and as an expression of forgiveness to pass on a link to this uh, podcast or might it be an expression of vengeance um. it might be an expression of vengeance <laughs> and and join us next week